0: We are so grateful and thankful that you are our Father, and you love us, and you are mindful of us, dear God. You have chosen us in your great purpose, in your great plan, in your great compassion, in your great love, and with so much of grace, abundance of grace that's been poured out, dear God. And we are so grateful to you, dear Lord. Lord, we just submit this time into your hands. We pray that you will open open our eyes to see your truth to as we once again ponder over your words of God. And we pray, dear God, that we will, we will enjoy your presence. We will enjoy the more of God in our midst. And we will be built up and transformed more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. So that we live out in this world as your sons of God. Thank you for this time that we can worship you, we can praise you, we can adore you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Church, uh, over the past three weeks, we have been dwelling on the verse from the book of Isaiah. By now, I'm sure that, you know, all of us know the verse. Uh, So, uh, you know, if uh, Roshan can put on the slide. Yeah, there it goes. Yeah. So I'm going to speak on reigniting a, a covenant. All right. And uh, the, the verse that we have been dwelling on is the verse from Isaiah uh, 43 and verse 19, which says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will, ma- I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now that's a promise verse that has been that uh, Pastor Prem has been taking us through the context. He also took us through the preceding verses leading to this beautiful promise of God. And when we study, uh, you know, when we do the uh, close study of Isaiah forty-two uh, the, and the whole of chapter forty-three, in fact, the forty-two and forty-three, we we will have to reread. The verses, so many times we have to keep reading it, rereading it, since Isaiah's prophetic utterance, it moves from the prophetic present to the prophetic future. Okay, For instance, he moves uh, to the prophetic future by addressing the Babylonian captives who were captives for 70 years mentioned in Isaiah chapter 42 verses 18 to 21 where he mentions, uh, when, when he talks to them, when, he, when there's a prophetic utterance into the future, to the prophetic present, the time that he is living in, which is mentioned in, in verses 22 to 24, when Isaiah may be prophetically addressing the people of Judah in his days. And, and in these prophetic verses, we, we see a lot of imagery from the Egyptian captivity and the wanderings in the wilderness. And we also see God's actions of deliverance. So when we put all these things together, so I told you that we move from, Isaiah moves from, uh, you know, when we read and reread and keep reading these verses, meditating on it, studying these verses, going deeper into it, we see that his prophetic utterance, it moves from the prophetic present to the prophetic future. You know, so there is the prophetic present is also when Isaiah is prophesying in the present. He's, there are times when he's addressing his people and in his times. And then he's addressing what is going to be the, the prophetic future, which is 70 years in the exile. And that is what Isaiah is addressing. And there we see the imagery of, 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 the, of the movement of the people, the Egyptian captivity and the wanderings in the wilderness. And we also see God's marvelous actions. Of Deliverance uh, if we go to the next slide, one of the most important things that we must remember, I think you must note it down that the critical and relevant movement and action of God in the past to save his people it gives weightage to his assurance and hope of deliverance in the present and in the future. okay, let me repeat it so The critical and relevant movement and action of God in the past, there's something that's extremely important that God has done in the past, something critical that God has done in the past, and his action of deliverance in the past to save his people, and it gives weightage to the assurance and hope of deliverance in the present and in our future. So, when I say this, I am stating that there are battles and wilderness experience that we will face in the present too. We will have it now, we will have it today, we will have it in the, when I say today, in this period, when we are going ahead, we may face those challenges. But the critical and relevant action of God in the past, in our lives, in the lives of The believers of of all who have gone ahead of us, when we know so many of them and from the word of God, it gives us assurance and hope in every situation of ours in the present and in the future. All of us know the times and the context that we are living in. It seems so difficult for us, especially in our state that we have been facing a lot of problems there are leaders where i was i was talking to a, a group of pastors uh, uh, recently and um, you know they have come together in prayer uh, because of the situation that is that is coming up in in our own state and we know the situation in our country elections are coming up and uh, so many challenges are there for for all of us so there are people who are speaking and acting against us there's so, so much of persecution that a lot of people are going through it seems like we are in a battle zone isn't it So how are we to live in this battle zone? What is our reaction? I told you that the assurance and hope in our present and future comes from the critical and relevant actions of God in the past. So let me take you through some portions of scripture. I must warn you now, I must caution you that today we will be reading a lot of scriptures. Okay, So you please be prepared. I hope you have your Bibles with you okay i will we will be uh, putting it up on the slides but i want you to i want you to keep your bibles open because there is a it's a it's a lot of scriptures and i think one of the things that we as a church must do is is also you know uh, go to the scriptures read it extensively present it extensively speak about it meditate on it and uh, why we just i mean sometimes i hesitate just taking one verse and then speaking about it i would rather go into seeing all those things which have, which have preceded, preceded that verse and following that verse. I mean, that gives the entire context and build up to what really God is really doing. So I want to speak from portions of the rule of, the, of King Hezekiah, which is mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Before we move to that portion, it will be interesting to go back a few years before King Hezekiah came to the throne And we study the life of Hezekiah's father. Very interesting, actually, when you you, you do this portion. Study the life of Hezekiah's father, that is King Ahaz, which we read in chapter 28. Okay, so let's read chapter 28 verses 1 to 5. It says that Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. I want you to read this carefully because when you come to Hezekiah's life, uh you 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 can you can make actually a comparative study between the the father and the son all right so ahaz was 20 years old when he became king he reigned 16 years in jerusalem and it says he did not do what was right in the sight of the lord as his father david had done david is not ahaz's father but that is the that is a lineage that continues and and david is a reference point for god we see that even in uh, hezekiah's life you know we see uh, father david so he did not do right what was right in the sight of the lord as his father had done for he walked in the ways of the kings of israel and made molded image Im, uh, images for the baals he burned incense in the valley of the of the of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, he sacrificed, he burnt incense on high hill, on the high places, hills, every green tree. Therefore, the Lord, his God, delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him. So now. You know, this guy is just gone berserk. He, he lives in a place where he knows who the people of Israel, he's, he knows it. But yet he does all the things that which is against God. And therefore the Lord, his God, delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then, then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who defeated him with a great slaughter. And it's, you can you can go ahead and read those verses further from, uh, you know, from verses 5. It's just terrible to read how Israel is now slaughtering the people of Judah. Complete slaughter. Okay, And after these verses, we see how the leaders of Israel were brought to their senses through a prophet, Prophet Odeid, and how they released the captives of Judah. They actually do that. They, Come to some point, uh, some uh, uh, place where the Prophet Ode tells them that what they are doing is not right in the sight of God. Then, as we continue to read, we find how Judah continued to be plundered. It didn't stop there. The actions of King Ahaz let you know it led to further plunder. And if you look at uh, chapter uh, twenty-eight, verses sixteen to twenty-one. It says that the same time, at the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come, attacked Judah and carried away captives. You know, uh, Ahaz uh, got to the king of Assyria and told him, please help us. I'm, you see, when, he, when, when, we are, when, we are, when we are reading these portions, We must understand, we must look at it from the point of view of God's children. What are they doing? Okay, God's chosen nation. What are they doing? They are not going to God for help when they are being attacked. But he is still depending upon another king. He is seeing the might of the king of Assyria. And he is going to the king of Assyria and asking his help. It says, for again the Edomites had now come. They attacked Judah, carried away captives. Philistines also invaded, uh, and then they had taken a few villages. And then it says, For the Lord brought Judah low again, you know, like what we saw earlier that, uh, you know, God, therefore, the Lord is God, had delivered it into the hands of the king of uh, Syria. Here we see, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged. Moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to God. A person, a nation which is, led by, which is led by a king becoming completely unfaithful to God. And when a leader becomes unfaithful to God, all his people uh, suffer because of that unfaithfulness. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and been continually unfaithful to God. Also, now see what he is doing. He goes to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. He went to him and, uh, you know, uh, when, when the king of Assyria came, he did not assist him. What Ahaz does is, Ahaz takes part of the treasures from the house of the Lord and from his own house, from, the, from his leader's house, and he takes all of this and he gives to the king of Assyria, but he, the king of Assyria, did not help him. The one whom he had called for help and he sold himself to that to that king, that king looted him. he wasn't he wasn't going to God this time. King Ahaz went to the king of Assyria, he went to the powers that be at the time and he goes to them imploring them giving them all that they had the treasures that they had and he continues to remain unfaithful to God and then what was his uh, further action e- 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 action, the reaction that he had now if you, look at the, the, if you look at the next slide in the second chapter 28 and 22 to 25 it says now in the time of his distress King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. It was not that he repented or he turned or he went back and, you know, he's going, he's having setbacks after setbacks after setbacks. Sometimes we say that, you know, when there's a lot of setbacks, you know, we go to God, but that's not what's happening here. The temptation is not to go to God at this time. The temptation is going, his. He's is looking at the situation from his eyes from his context from his understanding from his knowledge of being a king from his uh, you know all the strategies that he knows to address it and what is it that that, that he is doing when he is doing that he is becoming increasingly unfaithful to the God, unfa- unfa- unfaithful to the lord When we go after things, when we look at our situation and get, we we are worried about it. There are things that are happening at a rapid pace. There's There's a whole landscape that is changing. And when that happens, the temptation is to go and seek and do things which are, which fit into our understanding, our knowledge, our capacities. We trust ourselves. We trust people, people in this world. We look at it not from a... We don't go vertically. We go horizontally. And that's what is happening with King Ahaz. And when he, when he, when he is going horizontally and not vertically, what is the Lord saying about it? He says, the, in, the, in, the, in the verse it says that he became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. Going after the world, seeking after the world with our understanding, with our knowledge, when we are confronted with situations and we fear the situations of the world, and when we do it that way, when we seek help, I mean, it's not wrong to seek help, I'm not saying that, but if our trust and our hope and our confidence is in the, those, those powers to be in this earth, then we become increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And this is that King Ahaz, it says. For he, And what he does is, he goes, he, he goes to another extent. He says, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, because now they have been winning victories. They have been following strategies. They've been doing all of that. But he says, because of the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to their gods so that the gods of the kings of Syria will help me. Look at it. It's not just unfaithfulness of just ignoring God. But it's the worship of another. And then, it, then then the verse goes on to say, but they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He shut it up. This, this, this word is important. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He locked it up. He closed it. He ignored. He didn't want the presence of God. He did not want anything to do with it. And what did he do? He made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. That is Ahaz's life. And then it says, in, if, you go, if you go on uh, reading it, it says, you know, the rest of his act, uh, all his ways from first to last, they are written in the book of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his fathers. They buried, him in the, they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs, into the tombs of the kings of Israel. That was the end of Ahaz. It was a life extremely unfaithful. Then his son Hezekiah comes to his place. And, uh, you know, uh, Morgan, the uh, theologian, says Ahaz was evil by choice, persistent in evil in spite of calamity, blasphemously rebellious, notwithstanding the direct warnings of the prophet of God. This attitude of the king made the darkness all the dead, sir. And that is a summary of his life, of King Ahaz's life, that he did not do right in the sight of the Lord. And we know what he did. He did everything that he could to trust in his instincts, trust in his capacities, trust in his capabilities. He had confidence in in the things of the world, the people of the world. And because they were successful, he says, How can I be successful like them? So they worship that God, so I'm going to worship. He set altars to them. He shut the door of the house of the Lord. And it became darker and the the, the darkness became denser in Ahaz's life. And then he went. And then we see a complete spiritual turnaround. Complete spiritual turnaround. If you go to the next slide. In chapter 29, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, comes to the throne of Judah at the very end of the king of the kingdom of the the, the northern kingdom of Israel. He comes to the very end of it. And in 2 Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 2 to 4, we read that he was 25 years old. Ahaz was 20 years old when he came to the throne. He became king. uh, Hezgai became king when he was 25. He reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. And his mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Look at this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father, David, had done. We see the opposite in Ahaz's life. That he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, unlike his father King David. But here we see Hezekiah—a complete turnaround—and the turnaround is not in the physical. In the physical, you look at the physical situation. He's a king. He's a king. He did a lot of things. Ahaz did a lot of things. He he took a lot of decisions, strategic decisions, based upon what was the what was the common understanding. He went to the uh, larger powers sought help to face an enemy, which seems so good as a strategy. But according to the word of God, he was unfaithful. And here we see the verse saying, the God saying that he, was, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Well, three years after the start of his, of his reign, the Assyrian armies, they set siege to, to Samaria. And three years after that, the northern kingdom was conquered. So the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered. You know, And the, it's a sad fate of the northern kingdom. And it, was, it, it looked like a valuable lesson to Hezekiah. He saw firsthand what happened when the people of, re, of God rejected their God and his word and worshipped other gods. Uh, Hezekiah was one of those better kings of Judah. And he had a long and mostly blessed reign. And we look at uh, what made the difference. What was the difference? Why was he Why was he good? Why was he upright? Uh, he, no doubt, his mother Abijah, she was a godly and important influence on his life. Uh, his 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 mother uh, Abijah, uh, the daughter of Zachariah, probably is the Zachariah mentioned and mentioned by the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter eight and verse two and is called as a faithful witness. And there's a possible friendship of his mother for the prophet, and combining that with the certainty that up to this time that he had been under the influence, Hezekiah had been under the influence of Isaiah's ministry, that may account for Hezekiah's action on coming to the throne. And see what he does. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 2-4, to if you look at it, in the first month of the first year of his reign, in the first month of the first year of his reign, you know, Ahaz's father had shut the doors of the temple. What does Hezekiah do? He opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. Once the father shut the door, his son opens the doors of the temple of the Lord and he repaired them. That which was in disuse, he repairs them. And then what he does, he goes as per the protocol. He brings in the priests, the Levites, assemble them in the square on the east side. And then he addressed them. It's all mentioned in that uh, chapter 29. He started with the temple. The first thing that he did in restoration is he started with the temple. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. The house of the Lord was the place which indicated the presence of of God, not only in that sanctuary, but as a sign of God's reign in the nation, that God is sovereign in this nation. And that was what, what Hezekiah was doing. He was indicating that he was king, but he was submitting to the king, to the king. Hezekiah was king, but even though he was in that place of being the king, he was submitting himself to the king. The first action opened the temple, repaired them, and then he, an, an act of submission to the king. He then addressed the tribe who were chosen to bring the sacrifices of the submitted people. That's a protocol. It happens. There is the, God works in a certain manner, in a certain way. You study the entire Old Testament or New Testament, you see God's work is done in a certain way. There is a certain protocol that he follows. There is there are, There are leaders he raises up. There are leaders whom he interacts with. There are people who... Who individuals who are raised up. And we are those individuals who have been raised up and whom he works through in this world. There is a protocol that he works through in this world. And Hezekiah does that. He calls the people and, he, and his address it gives us a fair idea of how far the nation had disobeyed God and gone away from him. And he starts off by saying one thing. Consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. Make yourself holy. You have gone away. Our fathers have done this. We have ignored God. We have gone away. Why should we, why sh- why shouldn't we go away? Why should, why should we not ignore God? Because God has chosen us. God has chosen us to be a people where... His salvation is granted to us so that we will be of service to the kingdom of God. The salvation and service go hand in hand. We cannot say that we are saved and that we do not serve. Jesus said that, isn't it? I came to serve. Salvation is not another thing altogether and from service. They go hand in hand. You are saved to serve. We all are saved to serve. This nation is saved, the holy nation, the royal priesthood that we are. We are the chosen people, a royal nation. We are sanctified by him. We are saved to serve. Such an important thing for us to remember. and. He gives an address to them. He speaks to the people and he says, how far you you have gone. And so what he says is the way that you need to return is, he says, consecrate, consecrate, make yourself sacred again, make yourself holy again so that we repent of our past. We acknowledge that these are the things that happened in our past. But at the same time, we want you, Lord. We acknowledge your sovereignty over us. We submit to you. To your Lordship, and then he says something very, very important, which is the base of what my what my message is. In verse, uh, you know, in the next verse, he says, uh, you no. Know, before that, he says, you know, he says, my sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before Him. The Lord has chosen you to stand before Him, to serve Him that you should minister the next slide uh, uh, roshan that you should minister that word minister it's a word which is which is the, the 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 hebrew word haya it means that you that you are there you exist you exist to him unto him and to burn incense that you should minister to him which is ministering is to exist unto in the in the in the in the Hebrew word, the higher the word is, we exist unto. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? What we what what we what, when we go a little deeper and understand what 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 is all actually being said? He's saying we exist unto him to stand before him. We exist to serve him. We exist unto him to burn incense, meaning to say that our sacrifices, all of that which we, which we offer unto Him, rises up to Him. And we do that everything. So our existence is unto Him. Our complete existence is unto Him. And look at the way Ahaz went so far away that he existed unto himself. He exists. So there are two things that we can do. In this new year, I think we need to take decisions. Whom are we existing unto? Are we existing unto ourselves? Where we have our thoughts, our abilities, our capacities, our intelligence, our information from the world, our reliance on the world, our reliance on people on the world. That is existing unto ourselves. So we can make a choice today. Do we exist unto ourselves? Is there any portion of my life where I exist unto myself versus existing unto God? We exist unto God. We are saved to serve Him. That we are saved. We exist to, to worship Him, to bring glory to His name, to fulfill His purposes. That focus shifts from ourselves, who we are, to who God is. We remove ourselves out of this equation and we joyfully, we willingly, we celebrate that our focus is on God. Every moment, every day that we do this. And that's so important. Whom are we existing unto? Ourselves or unto God? And, the, and then the verse goes on to say, then the Levites did all the thing that his king Hezekiah said. And they cleansed the temple and the altar. And after that, we see them praising God, worshipping God, sacrificing unto God. The Levites, they helped the priests in the sacrifice. Then in verse 36, it says, that then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced. They rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly they rejoice that God had prepared that's why he said rejoice when we exist unto God and we do everything unto God as we see this nation doing led by the king we see that they rejoice that God had prepared us his the focus is him that he had prepared us you know and then in, in chapter 30 then we move to chapter chapter 30 then it says that hezekiah sent all israel and all letters to ephraim manasseh and then you know he keeps doing that they proclaimed throughout all israel from Beersheba to dan that they should come to, uh, they should keep the uh, come to keep the passover to the lord god of israel at jerusalem uh, it goes on you know and it says uh, the uh, the the command of the king as the children of israel Return, you know, when the proclaimers are going, they're proclaiming, you know, they're saying children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. There's a proclamation in the land. There's a loud noise in in the land. They go to the corners, they go to different places, they go to all over the place they go to. In, uh, in, uh, in chapter 30, in verses 10 to 12, it says, So the runners passed from city to city, through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far, as far as Zebulun. But look at the reaction. It says, But they laughed at them and mocked them. There are people who are still caught up with the reign of King Ahaz or with the reign of the kings of Israel at that point of time, who had led them away from God, and they laughed at them, they mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart, to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. In verses 18 to 20, it says for a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. And what do they do? They are actually violating at the point of time. They had not cleansed themselves, but they were having the Passover. But you know what the king does? Unlike King Ahaz, when I I go back to him, because that's a comparison, when Ahaz shutting the temple, building the altars to to, to other gods. Here we see King King Hezekiah praying for his people who have not cleansed themselves. And they had the Passover contrary to the law. But Hezekiah prayed for them and he told the Lord, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. These people have come. They have joined in the Passover. That was enough for Hezekiah to take that to God and say that, God, you look at our heart. You look at these people's heart. They have come to join us. They have not ignored and they have not laughed. They have not mocked. Rather, they have received the message. And when he prays, he says, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the the purification rites of the sanctuary. And you know, so now just an amazing sentence after that. It says, "And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Hallelujah. A beautiful thing. When we turn to God, it's, we may come dirty, we may come, we may, we may, we may come in different shapes, sizes, different situations. But God looks at our heart and says, The Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Isn't that an amazing thing. Our Lord is a Lord who listens. He's chosen us. He's chosen us. He's appointed us. We are chosen. We are appointed by God. And says that the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Amazing, isn't it? We bless your name, Lord. We bless your name. When we turn to God and when we look at him, it dep- doesn't depend on what we are carrying at this time. But when his people, call by his name, turn to him, God will heal his people. Praise be unto God. And so it says in 13, 26, 27, it says, Oh, there was great joy in Jerusalem great joy for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. They had gone so far away after the dedication of the temple and we see the moral degradation, the moral deprivation that sets in in such in such rapid rapidity. And king after king we see there's so much of there is there, there so much of moral deprivation that happens over there. And it says that since the time of the dedication by by Solomon, the king, at the time, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and they blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, to heaven. They're praying and God is not far away. God is there on his throne, in his holy dwelling place. You know the, all the praises, all the worship, their voices, their prayers, it rises up to heaven. God is not deaf to our cries. He only wants us to turn to Him. It doesn't matter what our situation is, what our context is, what our people are doing. So, if you have to, if we have to sum up, uh, you know, and if we go to chapter thirty-one, and we 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 can we can sum up. And uh, it, this is the uh, you know, from 2 Chronicles chapter 31 verses 20 to 21. The sum, where the, if you look at it, all that has been said. He says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true. He did what was good, he did what was right, he did what was true before the Lord is God. And in every work that he began, In the service, note that word, service, we are safe to serve. And in every work that he began, in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered. He prospered. Why? Because he had turned his people away. He turned himself. He cleansed. He purified. He told his people to sanctify. He told his people to assemble. He told he, the people came. They praised God. They worshipped God. There was, you know, they had they, they went back. There was nothing since Solomon's time that had happened as it, what happened in Hezekiah's time. And it And he sought God. And he sought God with all his heart. And so he prospered. So he prospered. Because he sought God. And he did it with all his heart. Beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. When we seek God, when we go after God, when we do what we do, you know, when we take our attention of ourselves, when we go from away, take our attention of the horizontal and focus on the vertical, God does things, which is just amazing. And this is, as, as, I, as I told you, the critical actions of God in the past will give us the assurance and hope in our present and in our future. Now, there is an, now there's an interesting turn that happens. Now everything, you know, they have, they have done everything, whatever they needed to, to do, and everything seemed to be beautiful, isn't it? Uh, so there has been repentance, there has been cleansing, gathering, worship, praise, sacrifice, demolishing those things which were against God, people coming back to God, A king whose heart was set set on God. God hearing their prayers as their prayers rose up to God. Perfect scenario, isn't it? Now everything else in life should look beautiful. Now there should not be any disturbance. Everything should be absolutely beautiful from now on, isn't it? Now that's, that's our thinking, isn't it? But look at chapter 32, the way it starts. This is the anticlimax. It says, After these deeds of faithfulness, after these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. Okay, look at this. Everything is beautiful. Everything is done in the perfect way. He is, he, is a, he is a man after God's own heart. He did everything that was right. Everything was set. But set for what? For what was it set? What was that all those things established for? It says after these deeds, after these deeds of faithfulness, you know, when we are, when we are set in our foundation, everything is set. It is set for something that happens, that's going to happen. Okay, after these deeds of faithfulness done by the king and by all his people, okay, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered Judah, the most powerful ruler of his time at that time. Uh, I think Babylonian kings are coming up at that time, but he was a Sennacherib was a powerful king of Assyria. He came and he encamped against the fortified cities, and thinking to win them over to himself. Well, here the, I mean, when we when we are studying the word of God, here we look at, uh, we have to look at even other portions, you know. So because the chronicler here does not give us the entire story in uh, chapter 32, Uh, we we have to actually go through uh, uh, in the portion of the of kings. So if you if you go to 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 13 to 17, we see something really shocking. You know, this person who is, that's why he said, we need to have a comparative study with, uh, uh, with King Ahaz's life. It says that, and in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Seneca, Sennacherib, King of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. What does King he- Hezekiah do? Hezekiah, King of Judah, he sent word to the King of Assyria at Lachish saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he told them you have to pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So what does Hezekiah do? Like his father, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord, in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah even stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah himself had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent, what did he do, the king of Assyria? Exactly what happened with Tiglip with Pileser, who was the king of Assyria, and who Ahab went to. What did he do, the king of Assyria, when he, once he received all this? He sent the Tartan, the Rapseries and the rap, Rapshake from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. This seems so much close to the account of Hezekiah's father's action in 2 Chronicles 28, 16 to 21. Isn't it so close to, the, so close to that action? But we see in uh, chapter 32, in verse 6-8, uh, to eight, there is a correction, correction that happens. But Hezekiah, he corrects himself, he, he builds walls, he raises towers, addresses the captains and then he addresses them saying, be strong and courageous. And he realizes, Hezekiah re- realizes that his eyes have been taken off those things you know, where he should not be dwelling. His eyes should be somewhere else. And so he talks to his people and he tells his people, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor, be, nor before all the multitude that is with him. There are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. Look at Hezekiah. He did everything. You know, He gave away everything now. But he tells him, the focus is over on the flesh, on his self, on the things of the, of the world. When he looks at the, the emperor from Assyria coming to, coming over, he takes his eye he t- takes his eyes off and he says, that guy, he's only got an arm of flesh, but we are equipped with the Lord our God. He will help us to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. You know, after this, the uh, you know Sennacherib, Sen- 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 uh, he sends his servants and they and they tell uh, you know, then what do you trust? That you remain in that you remain under siege in Jerusalem. Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourself over to die by famine and by thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us? And then he goes on to say, where the gods of the nation of those lands where I attacked in any way able to deliver the lands out of my hand, where those gods, where I have gone there and I have conquered there, he is so self-possessed. Okay. He looks at himself and says that those gods, Even they couldn't do anything to me. Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? He says, your God is one of those gods. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? He's got a point. He's got a point. Sennacherib has got a point. He's gone. His fathers have gone to different places. He's an emperor. He's ruling over many kingdoms now. Many of them uh, have come under the uh, Assyrian uh, king. And wherever he's gone, whichever god uh, he is, they had gods. And he's won over battles of them. And then he says, how much less will your god, he compares this god, with every other God, and they say, how much less will your God deliver you from my hand? That is a comparison. Even in, the, in, the, in our life today, in our world that we live today, people outside compare our God with every other God. And that's what they say. What is so exclusive about your God? There's nothing. There's nothing. He's just one among all the God's. Sennacherib's servants also spoke and he, and, he, and he wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel. As the gods of the nation of other lands have not delivered the people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out the a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they may take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the God of the people of the earth, the work of man's hands, it says. That's the, that's the situation that we are in. All gods, as of now, as, as far as the world is concerned, the wisdom of the world says that all these are equal. It is our capabilities. It is the way we think. We need to defend our God. No God can say, no, your God cannot save. Okay? But what was the response? What was the response of the people of God at that time? If you look at chapter 32 verses 20 to 23, if you look at it, it says that now because of this king Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah comes back into the picture here, the son of Amos, they prayed. That word that is used in Hebrew is the word Palal. That means they just didn't pray, they cried out. They interceded, Palal is to intercede, and they cried out in a loud voice to the Lord they wanted they 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 were they they had to you know at that point of time the situation looked so difficult but the response was prayer they were not caught up with what the people were saying of, of saying that there is a there are there are all all of these gods they come under me i can defeat any people who are led by any god that's what people even now speak about they have comparison and they speak about it. But we must understand whom we are praying to. The Lord God Almighty. He is mighty. He is sovereign. And when we prayed, what happened here? It says the the Lord, it is no more a fleshly battle. It is no more a human battle. It has gone away. It has taken away from the earthly realm. It has taken away. When our prayers pierce, the heavens, the heavens Come down to the earth to save his people. And it says that then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And then when he had gone, the, the irony of that is now he goes into the temple of his God and his offspring, they struck him down with the sword there. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. From the hands of Sennacherib. Who saved? Not Hezekiah saving his people. It says, the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hands of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And the result? Many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sights of all nations thereafter. Wonderful, isn't it? Praise be to God. There may be times when we think that we have to do everything, that we have the capacity, the intelligence, the capability, that we have everything. But the greatest thing that we realize is that we belong to a God who is mighty. There is no God other than He is sovereign. He's seated on the throne. We belong to him. We have an access to him. When we speak, he listens. When we speak, he listens. When we we ask him, he answers. Doesn't matter what the situation is. So, how do we, we face our present situation? How do we face our present situation? we must realize, firstly, it's a spiritual battle. I've written it thrice there. It's a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Our battles are spiritual battles. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight. We are in a spiritual battle fighting the forces of darkness, the powers and the authorities and the governing powers of the darkness. So it is not our battle. It is a battle of a God. We are in a spiritual battle. Hezekiah He did activate his army and he shared words of encouragement. But we see that Sennacherib's aggression and rant was met by the angel sent by the Lord, who then does what only God can do. Our confidence, our trust is in God. We fear God. We do not fear any person. We we serve many people. But we do not fear. We do not fear any context. We do not fear any situation. However fearsome they may be, however difficult they may be in our lives, whatever you're going through at this time, there is no prayer that is not heard by a God. When we cleanse ourselves, there is no prayer. And uh, one of the things that, that when, when he started off, I said, reigniting, reestablishing, reigniting a covenant with God. A covenant with God. Our conversations with God and among ourselves begin at our covenanting. So we have to reignite. Ezekiah did that. He says in 2 Chronicles 29 verse 10, he says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant. He is making that covenant. That is, he is re-establishing the covenant with the Lord God of Israel. He wants God's wrath to turn away. He wants God to look at them favorably. He wants that. He desires that. And so he wants wants to go back to that covenant. What is this covenant? It is a legal bond. There is a legality between God and us. The word legal is important to an understanding because it makes us take things more seriously. Satan has tried extremely hard to take these words, law and legal, out of a Christian's vocabulary. He does not want us to think that this is a binding requirement. He wants to think, he wants us to take it easily. Oh, you have been saved and that's it. Finish, over, done with. But we are saved to serve when we do that. When we we are doing service, that means we are in a continuous relationship with God, acknowledging God. We are are doing it for his glory. We are doing it because of him. And he does not, Satan does not want us to think that this is a binding requirement it is a binding requirement. When we make a covenant with God, it is binding. When we have entered into this covenant relationship with God, it's a binding, it, it is binding on us. It is a legal document where God is the overseer. He is the keeper of it. And it, this makes the relationship closer, tighter, this relationship in a covenant relationship. Uh, husband and wife relationship is a covenant relationship in the Christian marriage it's a covenant relationship the intimacy that we experience is in the covenant covenant relationship that's why it's not bro- it cannot be broken and that's a relationship with god the intimacy with the god it comes from this this covenant relationship and god revealed himself as, a spe- as you know as a, as a covenant making covenant keeping god of a- adam noah abraham isaac jacob you know and then he inaugurated the new epoch through another new covenant he redeemed his people and called them to trust and obey him, warning that faithlessness and obedience would again lead only to judgment. Curse. We see that in the Mosaic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, we see how the deliverer seed would come specifically from his line. And then when the new covenant is established, Jesus is the deliverer seed who forges the new covenant in his blood. From Adam to Christ, we see this unified series of divine covenants that creates a single family tree and we are part of that. You know, in, uh, if you go to the next verse, you know, Jesus is the covenant. The covenant is a person. We have entered into a covenant relationship with, with the covenant. He is the covenant. He is the one who went on the cross. It was his blood. And we see that in uh, Isaiah, uh, you know, uh, chapter, chapter 42 and verse 1 and verse 6 to 7. If you read that portion, it says, Behold my servant, Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you, it is your blood, it is your sacrifice, which binds and bonds this covenant. The final covenant is no longer a promise waiting to be fulfilled, but it is a person who embodifies its fulfillment. So God's covenant word is now the word made flesh. Do we have a desire to reignite our covenant with God, which is so important? And how do we reignite our covenant with God? Go to the next slide. What can we take from today's message? What is God telling us? Quieten ourselves. The temptation is to rush into activities. Rush into activities. Do, 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 do. But quieten ourselves. Don't ignore God. Don't cover up our shortcomings with our activities. All those things that sometimes you know we keep doing so that we ignore what is. We brush it up under the carpet. All those things which needs to be exposed to God. Don't cover up our shortcomings. Expose it to God. Humble yourself. People humble themselves and came to the temple of Jerusalem, isn't it? Humble yourself. We need to humble ourselves. But but how can can we do that? By acknowledging who God is. Taking the focus of ourselves. We don't need to place ourselves in the center of the universe. Christ is the center. we just going around it. We just have to have the right estimate of ourselves. Return to God's word. When they return to God's word, God gave them singleness of heart. That word is... The word ikad, which means united. They were united in heart. So if we're talking about, when, if if we say that as believers are we united, we unite because of God's word. We return to God's word. We understand His word. We depend on His word. Our confidence is in God's word. It is the wisdom of God against the wisdom of the world. So we trust the wisdom of God. How do we know the wisdom of God? It is through His word. Remove any altar that you have built. Anything that your heart is drawn and attached to is your altar. It can be your children, it can be your work, it can be your education, it can be whatever, your money, anything. If that is what your heart is drawn to and attached to, that is your altar. People removed and cast away other altars. Do it. Be bold. Go ahead. Cleanse it. It's time. It's a new year. It's new things that God is interested in doing. Break it up, which needs to be broken up. Raise a prayer. King. king you saw the king uh, Hezekiah's prayer for his people. Raise a prayer. God will hear the prayers of his covenanted people from heaven and answer this. Are there going to be challenges? Yes. Remember, we are in this battle. Our own people may mock us. Our enemies may mock us and come against us. They will use our own language to discourage us, but what do we need to remember? Go to the next slide. Our Lord Jesus Christ was mocked, spat upon, and crucified. Yet through it all, He remained the true Israel, the one connected to His Father. His last conversation was not with people around Him, but with His Father. He was not focusing on His sufferings, though He said, "If you know that He knew that He was beaten up and He was on the cross, and but His." His, his attention was turned to His Father. Today we have life eternal, the ultimate victory over death because of Him. Who are we afraid of? Our covenant relationship with Him makes us sit in the heavenlies with Him in all power and authority which is vested in Christ and now which is ours. Ephesians 2, 4-7 to 7 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So let me conclude. Let me take you back to the Garden of Eden. God's presence was in the Garden of Eden, where the four rivers flowed. There were streams. It was a garden. That is what we were made for. Pishon, Gihon, Hidekel, and Euphrates, they flowed in the Garden of Eden. Humankind was not placed in a a, a wilderness, but in a place where rivers flowed. Our sins took us away from that place. And then we see the wilderness experience of Israel. Yeah, our life in the sinful world will see battles. Remember that these are spiritual battles. We'll have to go through those, There are times when we are taken through those wilderness. But God's son, Israel, was promised streams of water in the wilderness. Isn't that the verse that we have read in Isaiah 43.19? He promised those streams of water. You compare it to the Garden of Eden. Four rivers in in the Garden of Eden, which nourished that place. And here, people have come to the wilderness, but God has not gone away. God's gracious presence is still there. There is rivers in the waters of the wilderness and we, God's children, God's sons, have streams of living water. When we come to the new covenant, it says we have streams of living water flowing into us and from us. We are not just victors. We are more than conquerors. Can we look at the next slide? We are people who not only experience streams in the desert, but we are bearers, sharers of this life-giving water of God. May God bless us all, may we continually experience and have an overflow of the living streams of God.